Well, I'd like to pray with you for a minute as I could, as we look into your God's word. Let's, let's pray. Such wonderful biblical truth we've been singing. To make your name first. To praise your name. To revere the name of God. This is what you offer to us. This is in what you invite us to be part of. To have you as the first in our life. And it's the best way to do life. And so, Lord, as we consider that now, as we look into your word, we invite you to speak to us clearly and personally. We ask these things just with anticipation, with grateful hearts. In Jesus' precious name, amen. This morning, we're going to be talking about this. And it's the last in our series of messages called Right on the Money. And it's that expression that we will often use. You know, that's right on the money. And we're going to talk about it in a way that we really don't hear in the culture. We're going to talk about handling our finances in a way that honors God, in a way that's deeply wise, in a way that has fun written all over it, in a way that brings joy in life. And it really flies in the face of the mindset of our culture that cultivates this idea that if I only had more, then magically I'll be happy and satisfied. And all of us, if we've bought into that mindset, understands the emptiness of that kind of thinking. And so the last couple of weeks ago, we talked about stuff and how all the stuff belongs to God. Last week, we skipped through 10 Financial commandments for wise living. And today we're going to talk about the divine dare. And I came across a couple of scholars, their last names are Lee and Webley. And they use two metaphors. I think they're very apt metaphors to help us understand the role of money in our lives. They said typically money for us, for the human race, is a tool, but money sadly also can be a drug. And so we see money as a very valuable thing, a good thing, a tool. It allows us to pay the bills that need to be paid to make sure that the lights stay on, to be able to buy food, to be able to buy clothes and shelter. And and this is celebrated in scripture. A biblical example of this and the value of money and the goodness of money is Jesus in the parable of the talents where the master gives his servants uh, copious amounts of cash and they are expected to put the money to work, to gain interest, to be invested wisely and to be managed properly on the master's behalf because money is a good thing. It's a tool. It's a valuable tool. And we've said through this series, and it's not original with me, we're invited to make all we can, to save all we can, and to give all we can. So why is it 
that some people, no matter how much they have, always desperately want more and are captivated captivated by this image. Why does the person that has enough, which is basically all of us, especially when you look at the rest of the world, why do so many of us sacrifice our families and damage friendships and a call into question our integrity and our emotional health all to get more money? Money is a valuable tool but it also can become a drug. Money can tempt us to feel things we would not otherwise feel. It makes us feel powerful when we're actually quite weak. And we lie to ourselves and we say, if only I had enough, then I could feel safe and self-sufficient. And it gives us this temporary high, this temporary buzz. It gives us a respite from pain and from depression. And it's a momentary illusion of well-being, of course, until we have to pay the bill. And so we crave money for the buzz. The biblical writers knew all about this and the power of illusion that we operate under when it comes to money. So one of the things they said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, they said, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. You know, and it's interesting. It's kind of like the abuse of alcohol and drugs. And you could just interchange the words in that First Corinthians 6 passage. I think we could pre- re- pre- um, replace the words get rich with get artificially relaxed with alcohol and drugs. And they're just interchangeable. And so money is a valuable tool. There's nothing wrong with money whatsoever. Again, I'll say it. Make all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. Nothing wrong with it. Until it becomes a drug in our life. The biblical translation of that kind of thinking is, money is a servant and money can be an idol. An idol, you often hear me say this, is anything, anything we worship, anyone we worship, anything that we make more important than God becomes an idol in our life. Tool or drug. Matthew chapter 6, 19 and 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so God loves us so much and doesn't want us to live an empty life hooked on the drug that will never satisfy And so he creates this incredible vehicle to help free us. He reminds us of who it all belongs to. And then he invites us to live wisely, to give generously, to be seeing tithing as this great launching pad towards great giving, a platform to launch a generous spirit of sacrificial giving. And my experience is, A lot of people who are fuzzy on this stuff. I come across them all the time. 
So the tithe, for example, in both Hebrew and Greek means a tenth off the top. And it's this launching point for giving. And we see tithing um, before the law, Abraham and Jacob, before it was, they were told to do it, they were already doing it. So Abraham and Jacob would be tithing before the law. Then the Moses came along and the, the tithe came down. And then in the New Testament era, we see the Lord Jesus not only practicing this, but affirming this idea as well in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. And in every case, hear me very clearly, because so many people misunderstand this. I was with someone this week that misunderstands it. It's not designed to produce mechanical obedience where you're following some rule. It's rather to create a community of great generosity, a community where you enjoy life, and it's really a divine dare. One of my professors in grad school, he's a very humble man, so he wouldn't want me to use his name, but... Uh, he would be acknowledged as a world-class New Testament scholar, perhaps the man most well-versed in the world on the book of James and the book of First and Second Peter's written many books on it. Here's one of the things he said. The tithe was just symbolic of who really owned it all. Because what God really wants is everything. God is an all-or-nothing God. You see that all through the book. God is an all or nothing God in every part of life. And so my professor re recognized that and he says it's just a symbol, just to remind us of who's really, who really, where it all came from and who really owns it all. So I want us to quickly look at all the ways or some of the ways God encourages the nation of Israel and us in turn to give not to follow rules, but to cultivate a lifestyle of generosity that allows you to get off the drug that will never satisfy. Numbers chapter 18, verse 21 says, I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. So understand, of course, the Older Testament when Israel was in the land Remember, they've been in the land for thousands of years, contrary to what you hear in some of the news reports. Thousands of years. Because it was a land-based economy, all of the other 12 tribes received parcels of land except the Levites. The Levites led the people in the worship of God. So the other tribes were to tithe to God to make worship possible and to support the Levites. So one passage that talks about this is Deuteronomy chapter 14. And it's the fifth book, if you'd like to turn on your Bible or your device, fifth book of the Old Testament. And it says this in Deuteronomy chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God, at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Remember that? Always he wants to be first, to revere his name. 
But if that place is too distant, in other words, if you leaned, lived up, if you were the tribe of Dan, which was in the north part of Israel, and you were being expected to come, say, down to Jerusalem to give your offering, if it's a long trip, and you've been blessed by the Lord and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. And so another aspect of giving was to celebrate God's goodness, to enjoy giving, as the passage says, to revere him. And I keep saying this, and I'm going to keep saying this because so many people misunderstand it. It's not about rules. It's in no way, shape, or form about earning your way into God's good graces or books, which is impossible to do. There's nothing we can do or not do to make ourselves acceptable to God. He loves you perfectly as you are. And yet we are separated from him because of our willful choice to sin, to offend a holy God. And this is why Jesus came, so that my sin would be laid and could be laid on him, and that I could ask him because he died in my place. He did everything. There's nothing I can do so that I can ask him to forgive me. And based on his grace alone, I can be cleansed. I can become a child of God. In fact, the scripture calls us, if you've done that, a saint because of who you are in Christ. And so it's not about earning our way into God's graces. If you're thinking that way, you don't understand it. And yet, it's such a wonderful way to live life. And I begin, as I understand these things, to connect giving and serving with joy and celebration and fun. And it's just a different way to do life. So let me just give you an illustration of how that can work. If you were to walk around this church while ministry is going on, you're going to likely hear kids running down this back hallway here, which I often do. And they're yelling in excitement while I'm preaching. I love hearing that because there's children in there excited to have fun, but to learn about God. And it's so cool to be able to give and be part of the process that helps make that happen. And they're meeting all in different rooms all around this church right now or to see people out in the lobby after church having coffee together. And when we give, we can make those kinds of things happen. We're buying the cream for that coffee because we know, we know that that helps generate changed lives. It's all part of the process. And so my giving to God helps make all those kinds of things happen. And he doesn't need our money, but he says, I want Scott and all of them to experience the fun and the joy of partnering with me in giving like that. That will fill Scott up and the others that give in turn. 
And then all through the week, teams of our people are out serving in all kinds of different places in the community. And it's such a wonderful thing, whether they're serving in schools with our food for learning or at the soup kitchen or all kinds of different places where people are volunteering. It's a wonderful thing. Or serving here in the church. This church is busy often multiple times a day during the week. A lot of people ask, should my tithe... which is just a launching point to giving. Should it go just to the church or other church ministers? Well, there's there's no exact formula for that. Again, it's not a mechanical thing. But Scripture does say to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse in the book of Malachi. And so what Debbie and I have chosen to do, and this is what we do, is that we just give the first 10% of everything we make right off the top to the church that we're a part of. And then over and above that, we give to things like missions. So when you see on your envelope, global advance, that's to fuel all our IWs, our international workers all around the world that are serving all over the world right now. Or where you see Canadian ministries, the the stuff we do with First Nations and different things in Quebec and places here in Canada. Probably the number one question people will ask is, should my giving be on the net or on the gross? And my answer is, do you want God to bless the net or the gross of your life? For almost all of us, um, it's just, we give off the top, off the top first, and it's seen as a launching point by God. And so there's three word pictures that I want to quickly give you from Scripture that talk about this kind of generosity. And the first word picture is the idea of first fruits generosity, which I've mentioned several times in this series. It's always pictured in scripture, first fruits generosity. So for example, in Exodus chapter 23, 19, it says, being the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. So back then, of course, they had no social safety net. And if the ground didn't produce crops, you died. And so when the earliest plants began to appear, the people of God were filled with gratitude because this meant life. And as the plants matured, the farmers would go out into their field and they would tie a reed to the best, the healthiest, the first plants. And by doing that, it was a visual sign to everyone, to themselves first, but to everyone that they were saying, I am going to give that to God. God gave first everything I have to me, and now I'm going to give to him. And it was this word picture, this visible sign of first fruits. And it's so much like the way God operates with us, where everything we have, we talked about this two weeks ago, is a gift from him. We see this in the Lord Jesus, who we've begun to celebrate even this morning in the Advent as we recognize the coming of Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first one to be resurrected, the promise that everyone, everyone that has bowed the knee to Christ 
had their sins forgiven by him, received him as Savior and Lord, will one day be resurrected as well. Jesus cut the trail there. And so Jesus is God's first fruit. And so in a sense, God the Father tied a reed around his only son. And he gives us the very best. And when Jesus conquered sin and death and provided forgiveness by being crucified and by going to the cross and being resurrected from the dead, he's saying the whole crop of humanity that has given their life voluntarily to Jesus and surrendered to him, you will follow. But Jesus is the first fruit. This idea of first fruits that God always teaches helps us move money from being a drug in our life to being a tool. It's the opposite of doing it with the last fruits mentality, which many people operate under. They'll say this, and I said this last week, I'll pay all my bills, I'll do all my spending, and then I'll wait and see at the end of the month how much is month, how much is left over to give and to save. And of course, how much is usually left over then? None. Or very, very little. The Bible says it's the exact opposite. And it runs contrary to human common sense. But I will say to you again, God's way is much better than what human beings devise. God never, never invites us to give the leftovers. He says, I want to bless you. I want to show you how I can care for you. And so be a first fruits kind of person. And so we get a chance to thank God for all the resources we have and thank him for the opportunity to give. And so the second, the second word picture in the Older Testament is of harvesting generosity. And again, in an agrarian, in an agricultural economy, which it was primarily based on, harvest time is payday. And God made sure that he had built-in reminders at harvest to remind them to be generous. So it says in Leviticus 23, verse 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. And so if you were a farmer, which was most of the people um, in Israel at that time, this is what you will do. Now, today, maybe you're a farmer, but most of us aren't. Very few people are farmers. If you are a wage earner or a business owner, how does that translate that verse into your life? How is God wanting to remind you in terms of what harvest looks like for you to be a generous person? So in the agricultural setting, what he said to do is, as you're harvesting your crops along the borders of your land, leave some of the crops so that the poor and the foreigners and the widows and so so forth can harvest some. They can glean. And so in a crisis situation, you would just give them some food. But the normal practice was that you invited them to glean. You didn't just give them, you let them work to get some food, which again is a biblical thing, which respects the dignity of that person. 
And it's good for them to feel the joy of working for their own food. And we see this in the New Testament as well, because one Sabbath, Jesus was gleaning himself, and it upset the people, that he, some of the Pharisees, that he was gleaning on the Sabbath. But it's interesting, sometimes I hear people from the Word of Faith movement suggest, well, Jesus was really wealthy because he had a treasure, but here he's gleaning, which is a biblical illustration that you don't have much. And typically in Scripture, when you gave to the poor, you gave, if somebody was a local person, you would allow them to glean enough food for a week. But if it was a traveling, non-local person, you would sort of invite them to glean enough for the day. And so Jesus in the Lord's Prayer said, give us this day our daily bread. And one scholar suggests that Jesus is identifying himself with the poorest of the poor. So there's this image of the first fruits, this image of the harvesting generosity, and then there's an image of accidental generosity, unplanned generosity. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf of grain, Do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So you've been working all day. You're home having supper or whatever. And you remember, oh, I forgot to go and get that one sheaf or two sheaves there on field number four over there or whatever. God says, don't go back for it. Just leave it. And really what he's saying is, I almost can obey God by accident. This is how cool God is. And he will bless us for that. That God can turn a bad memory or a limited memory into a spiritual gift. And then when I just have that generous spirit to just leave it for that widow that needs it or, or that alien, someone from outside the country that needs it or somebody that's lost their job or something like that or an orphan, God will bless me for that. So every once in a while, you're in a restaurant maybe and somebody has served you really well, they're working hard, you see them running around. See how hard some of those servants are working, running around in the restaurant, you know, putting on 15 or 20,000 steps a day or something like that. And you can just, you're praying and you can just kind of tell, this person could use a good tip today. Why don't you give them a good tip? And every once in a while when you get a letter from Streets Alive, which you saw in the video earlier, or Safe Families that you heard about earlier, um, that we've given to as a church here in town, or, or you hear about Ian and Rebecca, who are international workers, missionaries that we are in partnership with over in North Africa, or Hersan in Costa Rica that we just sent money to. Once in a while, God just might remind you, or you get a letter or a communication from them. Maybe God's just saying, send them a gift, because that's a cool thing to do. And then can I, is it okay if I just go a little crazy with you? I'd like to go a little crazy. And I'd like to suggest something. And maybe God would lead you to do this. Maybe he won't. 
And probably he would very rarely lead you to do this, in my experience. But this guy gave a large amount of money to a ministry. And he said to the ministry leader, do you know why I'm doing this? Ministry leader said, why? And he said, well, my wife and I were praying and we were thinking it was time to buy a new car. And there's nothing wrong with buying a new car. If you need a new car, they were going to buy a new car, a nice car, no problem. But as we were praying, my wife said, you know, I really feel like Jesus is saying, this is okay, we're good to go with doing this. But then he seems to have suggested to me that we should give a matching amount of money to a ministry that he'll identify. God does things like that, right? Not real often. Might not do it to you. But she and her husband prayed about it, and they decided to say, yeah, that's exactly, we're going to buy the nice new car or whatever, but we're going to give a matching amount of money. And it's kind of an out there idea. It's a wild adventure. But let me just tell you, it's a boatload of fun to do it. It's a boatload of fun. Got a boring life? Sign on with God. He'll make your life exciting. And so what if he, the next time we're being led to buy whatever that luxury item is, maybe God will say, I'm going to get you to give it a matching amount. And so for maybe some of us, maybe we would just decide to live with less. Maybe we would go ahead with the purchase. And maybe for us, depending on where we are in life, a luxury item for us might be $150. But for the next person, a luxury item might be $50,000. And you say, God's just leading me and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust him and I'm going to make a voluntary sacrificial offering match the amount of that luxury item. Because after all, God, it's all yours anyways. And I'm willing to give it wherever you want. And I don't want to be caught up in the drug of money. Voluntary, generous, sacrificial giving from the heart. How is that for a divine dare? So money is this great tool. Make all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. God invites us to enjoy it. It says in the book of Luke that as a good father, he loves to give his, good, his kids, people like us, good gifts. God is the one who created fun. We talked last week. He never calls for equal giving. He's always asking about equal sacrifice. That's fun. That's full of joy. And that is right on the money. Amen.